0: you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Titus chapter 2. If you don't have your Bible, the words to Titus 2, uh, verses 1 through 15, the whole chapter, are provided for you. Uh, the words are provided for you in your bulletin that hopefully you grab. Uh, and just a housekeeping note, uh, just a reminder that uh, one thing I forgot to point out is that there are bottles of water over here uh, in the cooler, and so if you find yourself uh, getting, getting hot and needing a little uh, hydration, please, please, please help yourself. To that Uh, they're ice cold and uh, yeah help yourself to those as we prepare to enter into God's word we just sang uh, that song that is a form of a prayer Uh, but let's go to the Lord now and pray and ask his hand to be upon us uh, as he ministers his word to us in his mercy let's pray God we come now before you and we ask what we just sang Speak, O Lord, show us that which we need to see, show us that which it is good for us to see, show us that which you would have for us to do, and show us the means by which you would have for us to do it, namely, through your power, by your Son, in light of your goodness. So, Lord, we pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. remember those uh, maybe from like a Western movie? Uh, I don't think any of you would have ever been to one of these, unless you're just really old. But those old saloons that had the doors that would, the wooden doors that would kind of swing open, and you walk in, and there's like the dusty hardwood floor. And on one side of the room, there's some cowboys playing cards. And on the other side of the room, there's a a couple surly guys who are like in the middle of a gunfight right there in the room. Um, Many of you probably remember those, at least have seen them in a movie. It was in a saloon such as that that in 1885 the world was changed, or at least that's what I tell myself. You see, in Waco, Texas in 1885, the drink Dr. Pepper was created. It was created by a man named Charles Alberton, who he served uh, vocationally as a pharmacist, and one day in the pharmacy he uh, became just so uh, uh, invigorated by all the different fruit smells and syrups and everything, that he started to try to blend them together, different concoctions, to come up with drinks that people might like. And so after a long period of process uh, of a trial and elimination, he eventually settled upon what we now have as Dr. Pepper. And so for 100 and, gosh, what, 35, 36 years, the recipe to Dr. Pepper, the secret behind it, has been kept in under lock and key. Make no mistake, there are people who have tried and those efforts that last over a century are full of uh, the remains of discarded recipes and of uh, disheartened entrepreneurs who thought they could copy it, but they could not. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried to copy someone's recipe? Maybe they even gave it to you. On this Father's Day, perhaps it was a, your dad or a grandpa or a, a mom or grandma or aunt or uncle who, who maybe taught you their famous lasagna recipe or how to make some kind of uh, uh, holiday dish just the way they make it. And you, even though they taught you and even though you had the recipe, no matter how often you try it, you find that it just doesn't quite taste the same. You know the secret to how you beat this, right? It's to not be able to cook. I hope to pass down to my son one day an incredible ability to cook a frozen pizza in the oven. And maybe even I'll teach him how to order takeout. But in all seriousness, I imagine you've been in that boat where you have tried something that others were able to do and you just it just no matter what it was, you couldn't find that secret sauce to make it happen. And you probably felt that way as a Christian even observing other Christians you see other Christians who seem to be a little further along in the race of the Christian faith. And that race actually seems like a nice, pleasant stroll for them. Everything seems to go well. Life seems to bounce smoothly. They seem to always have a peaceful, genteel spirit. And where the Christian life for them maybe seems like a casual car ride along the coast, the Christian life for you feels as if you're stuck in a car in the middle of gridlock in downtown Boston, it's 120 degrees and the AC is out in your car and you're honking and screaming and just hoping that you get home without murdering someone. And you wonder, what is it about them that it goes so smoothly? Or maybe you look at other Christians in their marriages and you wonder the same thing. You feel like their marriage is one where they are walking through a, uh, a, a garden of roses. They're, they're just on a nice casual stroll through a park. But you feel like your marriage is a constant struggle walking through a, land, a, 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 a field full of landmines. What is the secret sauce? How do we get from here to there in the Christian faith? Well, the book of Titus helps us to understand how. In fact, as we read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, we're going to see that the secret sauce is isn't so secret. In fact, it's not even so elaborate. It is God's Word at work within His people. And so as we make our way through this passage, if I do my job and if you do yours, and God in His mercy ministers to us by the power of His Word today, you are going to leave, we are going to leave, with just a little deeper awareness of this truth, that it is by His Word, that by the preaching and teaching of His Word in the church, that God grows His people In godliness that is born of grace. Let me say that again. It is by his word at work in his people through the preaching and teaching ministry of the church that God grows the church in godliness that is born of grace. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to the Apostle Paul in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Follow along as I read it out loud. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. In everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. May he write its truths upon our hearts today. So this morning we're going to see... Godliness instructed and grace provided. We're going to break this passage into two sections. Godliness instructed, which is going to be verses 1 through 10, and then grace provided in verses 11 through 15. So first of all, in verses 1 through 10, you see Paul begins to Titus in verse 1, instructing Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. He's coming off of or, or, or coming out of these warnings at the end of chapter 1, where he was warning against false teachers who were, who were present in the church in Crete that, that was this original audience, and they were leading Christians astray. And so Paul says, don't deviate towards that false doctrine, but rather teach sound doctrine in the church. Now you hear words like doctrine, and you might think stuffy, theological, uh, uh, beyond common comprehension. What is the point? What do we need doctrine for today? But what Paul would hold up for us and what the whole Bible would hold up for us is that doctrine is not intended to be stuffy, but doctrine is in fact savory. Doctrine is, is simply what we believe, what the Bible teaches about ourselves, about our God and about our world. And so if we want to understand ourselves and our God and our world, we will understand and we will listen to and we will submit under sound doctrine as revealed in God's Word. So Paul says to Titus, as, as the people under the church, as the people in the church are, are, are facing the temptation and being led astray, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. And that sound doctrine will confront and will change the, in the work and in the lives of those who are in the church family. Now here's something that I want us all to lock in on right now. Remember what I said earlier about how God uh, uh, gives great comfort to those who are his, but also gives great warning to those who would profess to be his, and yet they actually are in fact not. This passage kind of flows or rolls in that same vein of thought. It is just a little further down of the river of the truth of God's mercy and of the truth of God's sustaining grace towards those who are his, but a strong awareness of those who are not his. And so what God is saying to us, what God would show us in Titus chapter 2, is that the Christian life is not one of intellectual apprehension alone, but it is one of experiential growth as well. In fact, just as if if, if this fall, I wore a a New England Patriots jersey to church one Sunday, and then I said, after church today, I'm going to go to Gillette Stadium and play for the team, you would think that was absolutely ludicrous, and rightfully so. What Paul is warning us against is being Christian, people who profess to be Christians. We put on the jersey, but in fact, we are not part of the team. In fact, what Paul would say the team is are people who are committed to the cause, people who are growing and training and developing in accord with the the, the work that God is doing in their midst, and so they are they are hopefully progressing from one degree of glory to another as ones whom the Spirit of God dwells in. And so the Christian faith is not just intellectual uh, awareness, but it is experiential growth as well. And so now that's why he comes in and he tells Paul to teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he addresses four different groups. He addresses older men, older women, younger men, and then bond servants or slaves. And so as we read this initially, you might have gotten a couple of ideas here. Like, oh, that's going to be interesting. His words to older women about being submissive to their husbands, about teaching younger women how to behave in the house, all sorts of things like that. None of that will be controversial, I'm sure. And then also bond servants, slaves. Is this one of those places where some might argue that the Bible can, uh, condones or even endorses slavery? Well, hang on, we'll get to that. But right now, Paul is addressing all who would compose the body of believers and teaching them in accord with sound doctrine. But what we must note here is that we can't get verses 1 through 10 without then springboarding to verses 11 to 15. So hopefully if verses 1 to 10 lay a weight upon us that is good, verses 11 to 15 will come in and lift that weight and show us how we fly by the grace of God. So older men, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, Sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. Paul's saying that they must, older men in the church, older men who profess the name of Christ, they must not be given over to overuse of alcohol, to misuse of drugs or to use of uh, uh, illegal drugs. But they must be sober minded. They must be reasonable. They must be dignified. They must be self-controlled. If you remember, do you remember from last week in chapter uh, 1, verse 12, when Paul's described the Cretans, quoting another Cretan, as they are always liars, they're evil beasts, they're lazy, they're gluttons. And so now he comes in and says, no, the gospel changes you. So you're not going to be living on these excuses of who you once were. But in fact, older men, you must be growing in the faith and you must set a course, set a pattern for for other men in the church and how they ought to grow in the faith as well. So they're to be sober-minded, they're to be dignified, they're to be self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. You know, one prayer I have for our church family is that some of the older men, whether by age or what by experience, it is possible that we might have some who are older men in the faith who have been Christians for years, even decades, even multiple decades, many decades, And yet we might have some who maybe they're older by age, but they're new Christians and they need to learn even from some of these younger by age Christians, but ones who have been Christians and are further down the road. But anyway, regardless of who the older men are, my prayer is that God would make our church full of older men who are joyful in the faith, who aren't crotchety and angry at the world that seems to be passing them by but are joyful in the Lord who His steadfast mercies continue to rain upon them and day by day as the sun rises they're reminded yet again of God's faithfulness to His people. Maybe that would be a good prayer for us all to join in. That God would give us older men, that God would grow us in the older men in our church already who are setting this example and that we would grow in this more and more and more. Older men, your church needs you. Your church needs you. Particularly the younger men in the church need you. There are going to be younger men in our church family who get married and realize that marriage isn't, that they don't have all the answers for marriage after three months. But in fact, marriage is difficult. You're going to find that there are younger men in the church who will become parents, who will become fathers, and they won't know what they're doing. Maybe they'll get into jobs or careers and and the, the, the boyish wonder that they entered into the workforce with will soon turn to cynicism or they'll be soured because life in the real world will punch them in the face for perhaps the first time they've ever known. And you know what they will need? And this is important on this Father's Day of all days. They will need older men in the faith to come put their arm around them and tell them it is okay. It is okay. They'll need older men in the faith who can, say, who can remember, maybe not telling that young man at that time, but remember when they too were in fact a knucklehead and they needed much grace from others. Older men, our church family, needs you. We need you to be sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness, knowing that this is the place to which God would take us. Now let's move on to older women. Listen to verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Okay, so two things here that I want us to consider about these words that Paul writes to older women in the church. 1st We're aware that there's instruction here, we'll get to that. But the first thing that we must handle, if we're going to properly understand the instruction, is that there seems to be an implication here that we have to wrestle with in light of our context today. This seems to feed some of our thoughts that we might have about how home life and how the family ought to look in light of God's Word. Is this saying that women should not work, should only handle responsibilities in the home, that they should be submissive to their husbands, and that word submissive might create all sorts of different ideas or thoughts that you might have in your mind about what that looks like. And, and and maybe many of those march back towards an idea of being backwards or outdated in light of a progressive, uh, egalitarian day in which we live. So what is Paul getting at? Well, we've got to understand, we've got to remember the context by which he was writing, but we also need to understand a little more about Scripture. And we have to remember other instances where God upholds examples, like in Proverbs 31, of the Proverbs 31 woman who is to be admired. And one of the things that's admired about her is her, is her business and entrepreneurial Acumen that she displays in the marketplace. Elsewhere in the Book of Acts, there's a woman named Lydia who's a founding member of 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 the church plant in Ephesus, and and by all accounts, she is a wealthy, wealthy uh, businesswoman who had uh, achieved much uh, 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 success in in the corporate or business world. And so, where Paul affirms a a woman like Lydia, or where God's word speaks affirmatively of a woman who is uh, successful in the workplace, like in Proverbs 31, would Paul then come in and erase these things? I don't think so. I think what Paul is getting at here, and this is what we have to understand, is that Paul is getting at developing a picture for his audience of the church and the home and the family and all of these things being counter-culture, countercultural, being entirely different from the, 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 the world in which they lived in Crete. Remember, the, the people in Crete were given to licentious, licentiousness, debauchery. were are living to rampant uh, ungodliness. Selfishness was the name of the game. And so Paul comes in and upholds marriage and upholds the family as a picture not of selfish, uh, uh, not of selfish uh, uh, desires for, for, for oneself, but of, of, of sacrificial desire for building up and for caring for others, knowing that this is the way of Christ. You know, and that all of us who are Christians, we live in light of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. So with this in mind, Paul says with this implication, OK, women, uh, older women, likewise to be reverent in behavior. Let's consider this reverent, not given to drama, not slanderers, not not speaking inappropriately or unkindly about others. Are not slaves to much wine. That seems pretty self-explanatory. One thing that we'll see throughout these with older men, with older women and throughout is uh, uh, an impetus on self-control because they lived in a place that was so lacking in self-control. So they're to teach what is good. So train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be Reviled. And at the end of that, in verse, at the end of verse five, is the heartbeat of what he's getting at, that the word of God may not be reviled. And here's what I'm getting at today. As we consider how God's word, remember that what we started with, how does he take us from point A to point B in our growth as Christians? He does so by his word, and he does so by refusing to leave us exactly where we are, but growing us in our faith. And one of the great ways he grows us is in our care for others. And the people that God brings closest into our lives are our own families. In a place like Crete where the individual reigns supreme, the individual desires, the individual uh, uh, passions, Paul says, no, the individual becomes secondary for the sake of serving others. And marriage, as we see in Scripture, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is not something that was created by man for us to enjoy in our own uh, thinking or in our own wisdom, but is actually something that's created by God where husband and wife uh, image a picture of Christ and his church. And so marriage is as if God paints a picture before the world to see the love of Christ for his church and a husband's willing sacrificial service for his wife, even willing to give his life for her. And it paints a picture of the church and Christ where uh, the wife is willing to... Submit before the spiritual leadership of her husband, just as the church submits before the spiritual leadership of Christ. So, God is giving His church, His people in Crete, a picture of actually a countercultural world that they live in, that they've been called to by virtue of Christ. Now, this might sound crazy to you, or this might sound odd, but understand this picture. I want you to understand a picture, and I want to I tell it to you by giving an illustration. Do you know where one of the most dangerous places on the face of earth is? You can go there with ease. Nobody is checking your ID. Nobody is taking tickets from you, anything of the sort. And one of the most dangerous places on the face of earth is the self-help section at the local bookstore. And you know why that is? It is because it, there's, there's, there's an endless supply of titles that will tell you everything you can do to make yourself better, to, make it, to improve upon how you conduct your business, how you, how you uh, manage personal habits and self-discipline and all sorts of things. And what Paul says is that, no, the answer is not found in yourself, but the answer is found in God's work in building you up, namely as Christians through his word and through what the word proclaims to us about Christ. So I'm joking about the self-help section, but here's what I'm getting at. God would not have us to believe the answers to ourselves is in ourselves, but he would actually have us to believe that the answer to our greatest need for growth as people is in Christ and is revealed in his word. So he doesn't want us to look inward. He wants us to look outward and upward to Christ. And it is from that point that we begin in service to him. And so he's calling his people to a radical community that is giving of themselves for others. Next, moving on. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then, he, like he's saying to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So he, he tells young men, be self-controlled. Nothing else. <laughs> if you've ever been around a young man, that's a big task right there. I think that's one reason why Paul didn't give more in this moment. Hey, practice self-control. Practice self-control, young men. And that is it. We'll get to the faith and the hope and the love right now. Learn how to get out of bed when you need to. Learn how to be on time when you need to. Learn how to manage your, your, uh, the, the temptations that will come upon you in life. Practice self-control. Practice self-control, young man. And then he gives Titus this exhortation towards godly development as a servant of his. Show yourself to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And then lastly, in these instructions, in verse 9, he says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters, and everything there to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So the church in Crete, composed of older women, older men, younger men, some younger women who would undoubtedly need or, or, or be, be benefited by guidance and help from older women, and growing as, the, as young marrieds and as young mothers, and then bond servants. That word translates to slaves. So what is Paul getting at here? Well, it would be important for us to understand that as he writes to the church in Crete, that he, he is writing to a small group of Christians in a much greater, much larger context, much, la- much greater, much larger environment. And so we have other places where, like in the book of Philemon, Paul writes that, that, uh, to um, uh, a guy named... Um, uh, Onesimus, or writes of a guy named Oni- uh, Onesimus, who, is a, who owns a slave, and he's writing that Philemon is his slave, and so he's sending him back, uh, but he's telling him to receive him not as a slave, but actually as a brother in the faith. So he's responding to that role there where he can address actually the slave master. But here he's set, telling bond servants to be the best servants they can be. How do we understand this? Well, one thing I think we, it'd be wise to, for us to understand is that slavery was widespread in Paul's day in a manner that is different than we understand it. I'm not justifying it, but I'm also, not say- I'm also saying that it wasn't something as we envision uh, uh, 17th, 18th, even 19th century America to look like with the, across our country, but largely in the American South. With terrible atrocities and injustices committed. That's not what Paul was writing out here. So an application that we would have for this is not saying, okay, God permits slavery, but an application that we might better understand is how, as a Christian, how does this shape how I conduct myself as as an employee in my workplace? Am I submissive to my boss, even when he or she is difficult? Am I well-pleasing? Am I not argumentative? Am I not pilfering, but showing all good faith? Basically, the question is, at work, Do you give people a taste of Christ, or a taste of your own mind? Would your your employer, knowing that you are a Christian, want to hire more Christians, or say, "I can't hire those Christians; they're not good workers"? The, The the work that God lays out before us as believers is for our development in the faith, and our development in the faith requires growth and our humility. And in our selflessness before the, before others, even those like our bosses that we may not like working for. And so Paul says, verse one, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he flows through how this sound doctrine is going to shape the lives of the church in verses two through ten. And so it's at this point where we might get to this and say, okay, it is as if Paul is telling me, go run a marathon but before you do, let me put some concrete blocks on your feet. You might read this, I might read this and say, I don't know how we do this. And we rewind ourselves to the illustration early on uh, that I gave in our sermon, where it's like, I, I don't know how I make it through. How do I go from here to there? What is the secret sauce that gets me there? The secret sauce is verses 11 to 15. Paul comes in right after giving these instructions to the church, And he says in verse 11, you might note it in your Bible, circle it, uh, uh, highlight it, do something with verse 11, the very first word, for, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. Pause here. It is as if if God is going to call us to run a marathon of obedience to him, what does he do? He says, I have sent Christ to be your strength. He does not tie concrete blocks to our feet as he calls us to obedience. For Christians, it is as if Christ is the jetpack by which we fly forward in obedience to God. The means by which young men, you will exhibit self control with temptation towards uh, uh, sexual uh, sin is not through great resolve or through great discipline and and, and things like that. It will be through setting your sights on Christ, who is more glorious than the temptations that lie before you. Older men, the means by which you will be steadfast in faith and in love and in hope, in your home, in your church, in your workplace, with those whom you love being around and with those whom are difficult to be around, the means by which you will do that is not through your own might, but through meditating upon and giving great thought and consideration to Jesus Christ who has appeared before us and is, the, is an emissary, emissary of grace and he welcomes us before God. Do you realize how we treat others? Reveals how we believe God has treated us. So how ought we interact with others when we read that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to us? But here's the thing. Grace doesn't just come and bring new birth, new life to us, dear church, but grace also, verse 12, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pause here. Grace, not, grace meets us exactly where we are. Grace does not come to us and say, okay, you come and find the grace. Grace finds us in the dirty, in the miry pit that, you may, that your soul is in. But what grace... True grace does not do, it does not leave us in that pit. As verse 12 says, it trains us in godliness. So the question that you might need to consider today is have I embraced a form of Christianity that I even speak of and use the right words like grace? But is that grace training me in ungodliness? Or godliness, training me out of ungodliness, excuse me. I can't answer that question for you. Allow God's working, allow God's Spirit to do that work within your heart. But grace refuses, grace meets us where we are, but it refuses to leave us where we are, for it has a long journey to set before us. That's what chapter 2, verses 1-10 through 10 is. It's that journey. Grace applied. But where is that journey taking us? Look at verse 13. Grace meets us where we are, It trains us, and then it helps us to wait for our blessed hope. And what is that blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Grace meets us, grace trains us, and grace helps us to wait. And wait for what? The one in whom grace is embodied, Jesus Christ. One of the messages that we see throughout the book of Titus is that grace has a face, and that face is Jesus Christ himself. Brothers and sisters, what Paul would set before you and what I would set before you is that grace is the means by which God grows us. The more and more we reflect upon and consider this message of the gospel of God, of the grace appearing as bringing salvation for all people, and Jesus Christ who redeemed us via his cross to purify Himself, a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works, this message setting into our hearts, that will be the trampoline by which we spring into the stratosphere of obedience and growth in the faith. It is not through our own self-reliance. It is through Christ's reliance. As I read this, this week, in a book I was talking about with a couple of our elders, God is not looking for perfect people. The perfect one has already arrived in the the God-man, Jesus Christ. God is not looking for perfection and that is not what He demands of you or me. God is looking for progress. Perfection will be experienced whenever we enter into the presence of Christ and when He appears before us. I never thought I'd be interrupted by chickens. Brothers and sisters, may we... Set our eyes upon Christ who has redeemed us and who purifies for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Have you set your heart upon Jesus Christ? Not have you intellectually acknowledged Him, but has grace become the refrain and the cry and the beat of your heart? Has Christ's wonder and His splendor and His coming again has it radiated into your heart to the means by which it is, it is laying before you the steps by which you walk day by day, seeking to grow in obedience in whatever sphere of life God has given you as a husband, as a wife, as a young man, as a young woman, as a bondservant, as whatever hand life has dealt you, has, have you entrusted yourself to Christ as the one who is sufficient over you? May we meditate upon this and may we consider this. And maybe the warning or the exhortation is that if you have not done this, if Christ has been one whom you have intellectually set your mind upon, but not experientially set your life upon, this is the day to do that. If you are struggling, if you feel as if godliness instructed in chapter 2, It's hard to come by. You feel as if you've been set into a race by which everyone is running faster than you. Then that's actually the first step to realize the power by which you run the race. May I encourage you, if that is the lot you are in, to set your eyes upon the grace that is revealed in verses 11 to 15 and live by that hope. And if you find yourself continuing on just growing in steadfastness, continue to set your eyes on Christ. Continue to set your heart upon Christ, knowing that He has a pathway more and more and more, further up and further in, of trusting in and growing in His grace. Let's pray together. God, You are the one who reigns over us, and You set before Your people, You set before Your church, the responsibility to grow by grace. But to grow by grace is to recognize that Our growth is reliant entirely upon you. And so Lord, if there are brothers or sisters here who feel as if life weighs them down and they can't catch a break and and obedience to you is hard, I pray that you would help them to recognize to nod in the affirmative that yes, that is the case, but help them to recognize that they have a good shepherd who walks alongside of them in Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord, may we be a people whose eyes and hearts are set upon heaven, Set upon Christ, knowing that He is our strength, He is our fuel, He is our lifeblood for obedience to you today. And knowing that as He works in us, this new birth that we as Christians have experienced will translate out into new life that looks dramatically different than our world around us. Not looking dramatically different culturally, but looking dramatically different in faith and hope and love and however that might breed us in our relationships, in our marriages, in our interactions with others. So that our aim is not to look more like the world, but our aim is to look more like our Savior. May this be the cry of our heart. May this be the beat of our steps, which are fueled by grace. Grace that has come and grace that has a face in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is through him we pray. Amen.